You're listening to Key Matters from Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. All right, Dr. Oz, so we each had a shorter assignment for this episode. We each reviewed two issues. So do you want to get us started by setting the stage with current affairs and current events at the time and then tell us about your two issues? Yes, I'd be happy to. In December of 1885, which is the first issue that I covered, Dr. Pepper was served for the first time on December 1st. Then, the following day, George Minot, Nobel Prize-winning American physician, was born. He prescribed a raw liver diet for treating pernicious anemia. And he wasn't awarded the Nobel Prize until around 1934. Then, on December 17, 1885, France declared Madagascar a protectorate. So, I don't know, it was a little slow (laughs) in history (laughs) from 1885, but... That, that is what I was able to find for that year. Sounds good. So looking at the issue, volume three, number two of The Golden Key, there weren't any amusing advertisements this time, but I noticed um, by this time Kappa ditched Randall and Fish, their printers, for William B. Burford. And William Burford was a Civil War veteran who took over the business from his father. And then by 1911, his company had secured the printing contract for the state of Indiana. Always such a good Hoosier. Now moving on to actual Kappa history. Um, In October 1885, Alpha Province held a sub-convention. So in this issue they are reporting on the proceedings. I noted that Mary Livermore sent a message and she is of interest because she was an abolitionist and journalist from Massachusetts who eventually settled in Chicago. She was involved in a number of reform movements um, as were many women who volunteered in the Civil War who started out their work in reform with advocating for abolition. She was involved in a number of reform movements, temperance, things like that, and then worked with the U.S. Sanitary Commission during the Civil War, and she later joined the women's suffrage movement. An essay that I liked in this issue dealt with um, ladies' fraternities. It's on page seven, and I thought it made a really good point about the fact that joining a fraternity is not for everyone. So this is the same reason that, you know, there are many colleges, you have to find the right fit for you, or maybe going to college isn't for you, and you need to take up some kind of vocational training. But just the idea that fraternities aren't bad, it just may be that it's just not right for that person. And then I noticed that Minetta Taylor is no longer having to just correspond with the men's fraternities, now Kappa Sigma, Kappa Alpha Theta, and IC Cirrhosis have added periodicals. And I just love how brash and candid the criticism is in this issue. It really reminded me of being in graduate school and sitting around in our classroom, you know, around a table and discussing a a particular monograph and how people just loved to lambast a particular author or find every potential thing that could be wrong with their argument, which is what 
what we're trying to do. But um, the criticism for Kappa Sigma in particular seems harsh by today's standards. And I don't know if that really has to do with the fact that they're not delivering that criticism in person. It, it, we do have that barrier um, with the print <laughs> so they could get away with a little bit more. But <laughs> on page eight, the author of this criticism says, quote, on the whole, the Kappa Sigma is crude, as the first numbers of the most amateur journals are, but it has many promising features. So I don't know, there's kind of a do that compliment or criticism sandwich when you do, except it's, it's missing the type. It's like an open face sandwich, I guess, because there's some negative criticism and then they follow it up with, well, there's some promising features. So we have hope for you. Uh, Manetta Taylor also lambasts Sigma Chi for referring to the keys fair editress. So she really had a problem. She called me an editor. I am a woman editor. She retorts, quote, any feminine or special masculine termination to a word calls attention to the social relations of people and distracts attention from any other affair that may be presented. That's on page 16. And she goes on to say, it goes without saying that a woman's fraternity has a woman's editor. So drop mic. <laughs> She's Go Manetta. So those are all my observations from this volume. Lots of literature, many poems, still has that academic flavor to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, moving on to 1886. Again, to give you some context for what was going on outside the world of Kappa. In March 1886, alternating current power plants were being established in the United States. And it is at this point in history where we begin to get the current wars and I mean, if you've seen that film with Benedict Cumberbatch as Thomas Edison, that'll give you some idea of what was going on with the demonstrations of which one was safer. At the time, many people thought alternating current was more dangerous than direct current. It's actually not the case, but they don't know that at this point. And then in March, March 6, 1886, the first U.S. Nurses Magazine appeared. So I thought I would mention that just because we are talking about Catholic Magazine. So. That is all I have for, for context. So a couple of the things that I found that happened in 1886 included, in October, in New York Harbor, U.S. President Grover Cleveland dedicates the Statue of Liberty, a gift from France, and the ensuing spontaneous celebration in New York City led to the first ticker tape parade, which today would be an environmental disaster. We can't just go throwing about paper all littering through awesome. the cities. Oh, and uh, given our bonus content about the Pond's extract, which later became Pond's cold cream, in 1886, that was a big year for all things like beauty and pharmaceuticals. So the dates are unknown specifically, but Johnson & Johnson became a multinational brand and began manufacturing health products in New Jersey. And... Avon Products, the cosmetics and household brand, was founded in New York City in 1886. No, no. Okay, for the issue itself, really only a couple of things jumped out at me. I noticed in this issue that it makes mention of architecture as an emerging profession for women. So I thought I would ask you as the archivist, does Kappa have any famous architects? Off the top of my head, I'm most familiar with the Kappas who were doing architect projects for Kappa during the big housing boom, especially after World War II. Um, we had our own 
own architects who were building chapter houses on campuses. But probably the most famous, I think is considered both a landscape architect and an architect, Ruth Shellhorn Cuser. She received our Alumni Achievement Award, and our records show that she attended both Oregon State and Cornell. So I'm not sure where her degrees came from. I can look that up later. But she apparently is credited with developing the Southern California look. And I know that she did a lot of work with Disney on Disneyland. So she was very well known for for her work. And she was active, I think, in initially in the 30s. But then, of course, Disneyland was was a little bit later. So she apparently was one of the rare designers to be professionally trained, which distinguished her from most male practitioners who probably apprenticed rather than getting those degrees in that professional training. Interesting. According to Fran Beck's blog, Julia Morgan of Kappa Alpha Theta was the first woman in, in California to be granted an architect's license, and she opened her own office in 1904. But we're still nearly a decade away from that accomplishment. So this essay notes how really it makes sense that architecture is opening up to women because the skills necessary for design are similar to other professions in which women have already made their mark. It requires great precision and attention to detail. And the essay also notes that a number of architectural schools or universities then establish a school of architecture um, have been cropping up within the last 25 years. So there are architectural schools at MIT, Columbia, Cornell, Syracuse, and the University of Illinois at Chicago. And the essay explains that all of them but Columbia admit women. So boo on Columbia. Yeah. Well, was that also, though, because they had Barnard? Oh, that, that, could, that could be. It's, it's possible. Yeah. The only other thing that I want to make mention of with this issue is an editorial on expanding the fraternity. And the author says, Kappa should look to the future and then quote, but until then, there will be more of our kind of girls in college every year and they will need us and we need them. I thought that was a, an encouraging sentiment because there was some debate over whether Kappa should establish more chapters or just be content with what they had done and work on improving what they'd already established. But this, this person is clearly in favor of, of expanding. I love how the magazine very clearly starts out academic and literary, and then it moves into more of an exchange. They're all exchanging ideas with one another, and it almost becomes philosophical because... You know, so what, this is 1886, the fraternity is only 16 years old, and Kappa is in the midst of finding this experiment in the Grand Council form of government and changing everything successful. And so they're still kind of waxing poetic on how that went and then where they want the organization to go next. And I love that that's reflected in the key. That's why we're doing this. We see the key, I think, as our primary research source when we're looking up things and information in Kappa. And if it's not reflected in the key, it probably maybe wasn't of interest to the to the membership. So it's a real bellwether, I think, for the women of that time and of that ilk. 
So I picked up with the June and December 1886 issues and I fell so far down the rabbit hole on the June issue that I wasn't even sure I'd get to the December issue. So let's set the stage. You gave us the current events. The cover of these issues are still that robin's egg blue with the gold key in the middle and the gold border. The title still includes, or the title page, still includes the Tennyson quote, every door is barred with gold and opens but to golden keys. And that is very clearly so well known to readers in that day that it's not even attributed. It doesn't say that that's a quote from Tennyson or his, his poem, Loxley Hall. The publisher, as you mentioned, is William Burford, printer, lithographer, binder, all from Indianapolis. He did it all. What's that? I said he did it all. He did it all. The magazine is now four years old, and Minetta Taylor from DePauw is still the editor. She's 26 years old and seven years out of school. These details seem dumb to point out, maybe, or trite, but I just cannot get over the fact that she has been editing since the first issue was published in 1882. And let's point out again that she conceived of this magazine and assumed the position of editor when she was 21. She was 21 years old, a senior in college, and <laughs> now um, she's actually, this is one of her last issues that she'll be editing. So she's 26, and she has watched this magazine grow for the last four, four and a half years or so. The magazine opens with advertisements this time. One is from Drika, a stationer, and one is from Newman, a jeweler. So no patent medicines in the beginning on this one. Unfortunately. Of course, the first poem is, or the first piece is a poem by Minetta. It's called L'Amour Michon, and it's in French, so I'm not going to attempt to read it to you. The second is an article on literature that I skimmed through, and it's actually on literature and music, and it's submitted by another member from EOTA chapter at DePauw. So if your chapter is in charge of editing the magazine, of course, you'll probably have the largest number of pieces that are submitted. But then here's the rabbit hole. On page six, there's an article called A Few Parisian Sites. It's interesting that they're including more pieces about world travels, but this one especially caught my eye as it's by Maddie Tarbell, also from IOTA chapter, and writing from the Greylock Institute in South Williamstown, Massachusetts which we already agreed that Ada was not at Greylock yet. No. So they wouldn't have crossed paths. Side note, if you still don't know who Ada is when we name drop her, check out Dr. Oz's podcast, Voyage of Discovery. Anyway, about a month ago, I received an email from the organizer of the Bergen County Quilt and Coverlet Show, and she was on the hunt for a photo of Maddie Tarbell, a woman who had donated a quilt that was being displayed, and she was the first woman to earn a PhD from Brown University. And she was a member of Kappa Kappa Gamma from DePauw University. So I found that she joined EOTA chapter at DePauw in 1882. She studied in France with her sister, Laria Tarbell, in 1884. And she wrote several pieces for the magazine, no doubt at the behest of recent graduate, chapter sister, and magazine editor, Minetta Taylor. Her studies at Brown were amazing, and she touted why women, several times in the magazine, should consider advanced studies at Brown instead of at competitors like Radcliffe, which was Harvard's women's college, because Brown was much more welcoming to women. It offered greater opportunities for study that were on the same level as those offered to men, and she mentioned the value for the money was better, so it's almost as if she was working for the admissions office of Brown. 
Anyway, the name Tarbell caught my eye because of the famous investigative journalist Ida Tarbell, who took down Standard Oil. Ida Tarbell's middle name is Minerva, so imagine my hope that she might be a famous Kappa that we just hadn't uncovered yet. Well, she's not, but she's close. She attended Allegheny College and was a founding member of a local sorority that would later become the Mu chapter of Kappa Alpha Theta. And in Allegheny's digital archives, I found a 1930 letter from Maddie Tarbell to Ida Tarbell discussing their publishers. She writes at the end, quote, I hope the genealogists will let us claim each other as fourth or tenth cousins. So I totally ignored the tidbit about Maddie and Laria watching the hours-long funeral cortege for Victor Hugo and other interesting things that they saw in Paris and totally obsessed over her familiar last name, thus the rabbit hole. So once I get over the Tarbell thrill, I happened across a letter by the Beta Ta chapter at Syracuse, then known as Ta, on page 10, suggesting a convention tax, since at the time, the hostess chapter covered the bulk of the expenses to host a convention, and they argue that very few could consider this enterprise because they simply couldn't afford it. So they urged other chapters to consider this convention tax and also the idea of subconventions, meetings that would be held regionally in the areas of the country described as provinces on the Kappa map. Imagine the later confusion when we install our first chapter in Canada and they learn about lots of other provinces, only they're only in Kappa. This call for regional meetings makes sense. Conventions are accelerating, they're a big deal, but the fear of losing sight of what's important locally is also real. The fraternity is growing at such a fast rate by this time. If you look at the numbers, by the end of the first decade in 1879, Kappa had initiated 333 members, not too shabby. But by the close of the second decade, just 10 years later in 1889, Kappa had initiated around 1,600 members just in those 10 years. So that's a lot of people, and coming together every other year is a good idea, but taking care of local business in between is an even better idea. I thought that conversation about convention is interesting, especially as we are hot on the heels of a canceled convention and trying to figure out how to keep this organization in communication while we're all functioning virtually. So after that, there are editorials about the significance of Kappa symbols and recommendations for their use and distribution. After all, a secret fraternity will forever wrestle with the idea of being proud of things, but whether to keep them secret or not. <laughs> I really liked uh, there were submissions discussing the dignity of the fraternity and the true and false of Panhellenism is interesting on pages 13 and 14. And it all sort of comes to a head on page 16 with an unsigned article titled, It Doesn't Pay. <laughs> I love that title. It's so intriguing. Almost salacious. It rails against the practice of lifting members from one fraternity to another. Remember, this is before the rule that once you joined one group, you couldn't join another. So imagine their offended sensibilities at the thought of a woman joining Kappa, learning their secrets, and then moving on to another group to share in their secrets. So it was a big deal. And Cap is also still thinking about the potential of calling together this very first Panhellenic meeting that you and Fran Beck discussed in your, in your last podcast, Voyage of Discovery. 
The letters from the chapters are the usual chatter about members who have come and gone, and I love the asides like, quote, our chapter has accepted the kind invitation of a friend of one of its members to spend the afternoon at her home. So either the group was decidedly small or the friend of a friend's home was decidedly large. And the end of the magazine on page 33 again illustrates the youth of the organization, just how young Kappa was at this time, just 16 years old. They could list the annual reports of each chapter, which included the current roster and details on every chapter on just six and a half pages. And this wasn't the big magazine that we're familiar with today. This was more of a half page size magazine. So on to the last issue that I looked at, the last issue of the year 1886. It was the December issue. The magazine is now edited by Phi Chapter, and an individual editor is not listed on the pages that are included in our digital copy. It opens with a poem, of course, and an address about Kappa and its relation to the higher education of women. Both of those were read at the 1886 convention held in Akron, Ohio. Later, there's a roundup of news from that convention, but no review of the outfits that were worn or the food that was served. After that, on page 15, there is a very different style of article titled Innocence Abroad. I haven't seen anything like this so far, and it seems like the first time alums are trying to speak to undergraduates. It's a series of letters written between the every members, Margaret Townsend and Helen Stevens. I looked them up and we have members with those names, but not in 1886. And their correspondence seems to take place over the course of 25 years. So again, now that the organization has more alumni members than ever, there are likely more Kappas lamenting the frivolous nature of undergraduate members. You could just hear these older women mad at the undergrads for not cherishing what they have. What's that saying? Youth is wasted on the young. So these letters, I assume they're fictional, serve as sort of a cautionary tale, and it's an illustration of a member's growth as a member of Kappa. The first round of letters recount the activities on campus. They're excited. There's some confusion about what we would recognize as recruitment practices. The middle letters describe recruitment and confusion in greater detail. One of the quotes was, we noticed that a good many of the girls wore fancy pins and that these were of two designs. Louise suggested that the wares belonged to committees on hospitality or societies for the enlightenment of bewildered freshmen. And I thought the idea was plausible. But the last letters were supposed to be written 25 years later, and they reflect on those early letters as being silly, and now the veil has been removed, and I understand, and their current experiences with their own daughters going to school. And it includes lines like, I never realized how happy our college days were until they ended, and now I'm living them over again in my daughter. So it's like when any of us finish any chapter in our lives and people always tell you, enjoy it while it lasts. It seems to go by so fast and on and on. Yeah. That's a really unique or modern literary technique Mm -hmm. to to do all of that through correspondence, but then to even take it a step further and reflect on those earlier letters and it's, but it's all fictitious. Mm -hmm. And again, I want to be on, Minetta's shoulder and the editors from Boston. I, I want to know if Minetta's like, oh, why didn't I think of that? Or if she gave the idea to Boston at Phi Chapter. And I also 
probably like any editor, would love to see the reactions of the readers. An undergrad picking up the magazine and reading it, thinking they're really letters, and then being like, oh, okay, I get it. I see what they're saying. On page 19, uh, I luck out every time we get a letter, an article, from first grand president Tade Hartsuff. She's now married and has the last name Coons. They later report that she attended convention. This doesn't say that it was an address from convention, but I'm wondering if maybe it was. And in this article, she again urges members to recognize what a big deal it is that we are a part of this organization and how far the organization has come just in 16 years. I loved this quote that she wrote, we belong to the era of progress that threw open the doors of our institutions of learning to the higher education of women. And Tate seems to never want any of us to take for granted our privilege. And she also offers a rallying cry for people to submit more material to the magazine. She closes with these lines, on perusing the key, the thoughts and aspirations of our college days come back to us, and we are strengthened to put more effort into the real life of our existence, and so keep apace with the growing opportunities and advantages of woman. It is pleasant to think that among the great women of the future, not a few will have come from Kappa's ranks. After all, should it not be regarded as a blessed privilege to be numbered among the members of an organization affording so many advantages? You know, in these days when we talk about the privilege of education and having access to that, Tade was saying the very same thing back in 1886. There's then a more detailed roundup of convention, and they mention that the charter was returned from Berkeley because of fraternity opposition. And that's also where they announced that the magazine was made quarterly and put in the hands of Phi Chapter at Boston for publication. So finally, Minetta gets to turn over the reins. The correspondence read at the convention is my favorite, and it's printed in this issue, and you can tell they thought it was so important that they needed to include it. Mary Livermore, who you mentioned earlier, wrote a long letter from Chautauqua, and it's, it's really inspiring. She includes these lines. For women to associate in an organized form for the accomplishment of their purposes is a modern idea which is ominous of good for the future. Isolated, we can accomplish little. Organized and united, we become one of the forces of civilization. And you are college-bred women from whom we have a right to expect a vast deal in the future in your influence on society, in the church, the family, and home. So let your aims be high. Stand always for the right. Love one another and never fall out by the way. And do your utmost to elevate the standard of womanhood, physically, mentally, and morally. Talk about high ideals. That is a lot to live up to. There's also a letter from honorary member from Phi Chapter at Boston, Julia Ward Howe. This letter is super cool, but it's very brief. And she writes, I have only time to say, God speed your meeting and may the little golden key, which is your emblem, open many golden studies and sympathies to all of your good company for your own happiness and the good of mankind, of which womankind is the kinder half. <laughs> so, I love that these feminists are, are writing all of this. And I would think at that point in time, it must have been such a coup to get these famous women to correspond with Kappa and to have something that they can reprint in this magazine. 
I, I was trying to think of a modern correlation who we might be just as thrilled to get a letter for our own magazine. Um, I think today it would be if the editors got a letter from Meghan Markle, right? Yeah, I was just going to say that, although she's kind of infamous right now, so maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but it would, you know, it would be like Meghan Markle or Donna Tartt, one of our Pulitzer Prize winning authors who is very well known for not giving interviews. <laughs> if she were to write a letter to the key, how, how amazing that would be. The last thing we end again in ads. So this time it's at the back of the magazine, not in the front, back of the book, as I learned from our editors. And Newman and Drika, both the stationer and the jeweler, are advertising again. No patent medicine in this one, but there's an advertisement for the Flint Waste or True Corset. So um, 1880s fashion makes its debut in the magazine. I think this is one of our first ads. And I like that it says it's universally endorsed by eminent physicians as the most scientific waste or corset known. I wonder how it was constructed. Well, I have pictures of it and it shows it for both uh, children and adults. So there's, there must be multiple sizes. Oh, it says that uh, the material is shrunk before cut. And you can order a catalog, our, quote, manual containing 46 pages of reading matter relating to the subject of hygienic modes of underdressing. It could be mailed for free to any physician or lady. And this is an advertiser from Boston. So you can tell that they have shifted the editorship and I'm sure they pounded the pavement trying to get an ad and the Flint Waste or True Corset was the, the supporter. <laughs> well, these four issues, I think, were interesting. We talked about it right before we started recording, how I was reading mine with a bit of a modern eye, and I found that my attention was not always kept by some of the more academic or literary pieces in the beginning. So I think in our next episodes, I need to read a little more closely and not be a bored modern reader who is thrown off by material that's not quite as familiar to me. We can all do with learning more Tennyson, more poetry. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing all that you know about what was going on while these magazines were being published. And Dr. Oz, I look forward to our next episode. Yeah, me too. I had to work on my sign off. I think we both. Okay, thanks. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dr. Oz. That's our magazine. That's the key, and it matters. That's super corny, but it's. <laughs> You've been listening to Key Matters, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum is in Monmouth, Illinois, and you can find us online at kappa.org. All Things 150th is at our special website, kappaturns150.org, and you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Research and production is done by Dr. Mary Osborne and me, Kylie Smith. Thank you.